I'm Lydia Laws and welcome to Lifting the Lid. Today I'm really excited to welcome crime writer Trevor Wood to the podcast. Trevor's debut thriller, The Man on the Street, has been topping the sales charts and winning praise from the likes of Lee Child already, so I'm really excited to be chatting to him today. Anyway, let's jump in. Trevor Wood, welcome to Lifting the Lid. It's so nice to have you here with me. Great to be doing it. I'm really excited. Um, There's quite a buzz around the publication of your first crime novel, uh, The Man on the Street. So even though you're an experienced writer, this is obviously your debut novel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about the story? Yeah, of of course. Uh, The Man on the Street is a pacey crime thriller um, set very firmly in the homeless community in Newcastle. Uh, primarily about a homeless veteran uh, suffering from PTSD, uh, Jimmy, who sees a murder, but no one really believes him. He's not even sure what he's seen himself initially. Uh, but then a body turns up. And the Do you rest need more? is. Oh, no, 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 that's perfect. Um, so that's you, my best pitch. Yeah, here, no, I love so. it. I love it. Um, I'm a really big fan of the book, actually. It's really, um, yeah, it's very, it is very pacey. I hope so. There are a few crime writers who try to set things in the kind of, you know, social milieu, if you like. Yeah. Um, but they tend to be a bit slower. And I wanted to both do something that had some meaning as well, but also try and keep it a page turner, basically. Yeah, 100%. Um, to try and appeal to a, a different audience than might otherwise read it. So hopefully that will work. You work for the People's Kitchen uh, in Newcastle, which is a really great organisation. Uh, which came first, like your interest in helping the homeless and working with them or the idea for the book? And then that kind of inspired you to look into what you yeah, could do. Yeah, it was the book, the book idea first, basically. When I first had the idea for the book, obviously you think, can I write this though? And, you know, what do I know? And the answer was not a huge amount. I mean, I had that, probably that typical middle-class distance empathy where I've donate to shelter and buy the big issue and and you know do talk to people on the street and you know buy them a cup of tea or whatever but but I didn't really know a great deal about it so I did I started to do a lot of research I went down to the people's kitchen and and they very kindly gave me a tour around see what they were doing and talked about stuff and I went to a couple of other homeless charities as well and actually initially tried tried to get to work at the people's kitchen but but typical of this lovely city there was actually a waiting list to be a volunteer there even though nobody gets paid you know you couldn't actually get get a gig doing the washing up you know i i kind of got on with writing the book and and um kept looking and then about a year later when the book was probably only about three quarters of the way through probably um suddenly a vacancy came up at a time that was useful for me uh, Tuesday afternoon, so so I managed to get in. Um, so I've been doing it for about eighteen months now, um, uh, and I love it. It's great. I mean, I, I I I work in the afternoons there, so my contact with the friends, as they call them, with the users of the system, is 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 not non-existent, but it's fairly limited because by the time I've finished cooking and go home, they open the doors to let them in about an hour later. So generally, it's people who are hanging around outside that I talk to on my way in and way out. Uh, and I've done a couple of events out in the city that they do like before Christmas and things. Um, uh, but just going there and, and grafting when you're a lazy ass writer, actually going to do some physical work for three hours in a hot kitchen. It's kind of nice. You know? yeah, <laughs> I really enjoy definitely. just getting my hands dirty. Uh, and, and, you know, it's for such a good cause. And the organisation is phenomenal. I mean, no, they, they, they have no, you know, official funding. Everything is through donations from companies or or 
the public and every single person who works there does it for nothing and there's there's so many of them and they feed a hundred people a night wow every day of the week apart from saturdays i think but mm-hmm. uh, fantastic do you think that homelessness is an issue that's getting worse with the current social climate we're in at the moment yeah unquestionably um it, it, it's shameful um and it's just going to get even worse now with the latest election yes. <laughs> out of the way um i see no possibility of any increased funding for that i mean i think you know the previous government promised to build countless numbers of houses and actually built none at all um uh, and and whilst housing shortage is one of the problems there are countless others but i don't see them being addressed at all um mm. so yeah i'm afraid so I, I mean i think there are there's an interesting scheme in newcastle there that's not been running that long called Street Zero. So they're aiming to reduce homelessness to zero by 2022, I think. Um, Amazing. And they have, you know, they seem to have the right idea. They've combined lots of different organisations to try and make this happen. So uh, we'll see how that goes. That's great. Um, the Obviously, Jimmy in the book uh, is ex-forces. Yeah. Uh, you actually served in the Royal Navy yourself for 16 I did. years, yes, didn't you? I did. Were the flashbacks in the book related to personal experiences you had yourself? Uh, um, how much of that kind of fed into what you wrote? A little bit of everything, really. Um, I mean, it, it was kind of my starting point when I started to imagine the character that I, I, I would have to tell this story. And I'd done a bit of research and discovered how many of the homeless are ex-servicemen. That was clearly an angle that I had some insight into because I was in the Navy for 16 years. so. I, I know what an ex-serviceman thinks like. I, I know the problems when you leave. So I thought, okay, that's a good starting point for me. Um, and because I wanted him to have PTSD as well, there are quite <laughs> there aren't that many occasions you can trace back with the Navy in the last 25, 30 years where they, that would, it would have that impact. Um, so the Falklands was an obvious starting point for me because I was in the Navy when that was going on. I was very lucky in many ways that I didn't get sent down to the Falklands when I was there, but I had a lot of friends who did. Um, so I knew their stories. Um, so yeah, I tapped into that quite a lot. And, and, and also just the idea of what an ex-serviceman will be like and how I'll react to that kind of situation, I think. Yeah, I think that comes through in the book. Um, it feels very real yeah. and I mean, the, the actual, the, the major flashback where his ship is bombed in the Falklands is, is very loosely based on HMS Ardent, um, which which suffered in a similar way um, to the fictional ship in the book. When you were actually in the Navy yourself, what were you doing? I was I was bizarrely a writer. That oh, was really? my job title, yeah. It's what they call like an admin clerk, yeah. if you like. Um, so yeah, I joined up as a junior writer, then became a writer, then a petty officer writer, then a chief writer. Oh. So, you know, obviously fate... Yeah, it is um, uh, and, and at those at that time, I had no, you know, particular interest in, in in creative writing or anything like that. But it was a fabulous job. I absolutely loved it. It was. Um, there are very few of them in the navy because you don't need that many on a ship. But you look after the money as well as all the administration and stuff. So it, it, it was before the days of cash points and stuff like that. So whenever a ship went away, if the guys wanted foreign currency, you were the guy who had it. You had a big safe full of foreign money. Oh so everybody was really nice to you because, you know, if they weren't... They were in charge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And quite often they would want foreign money at awkward times when they'd missed the opportunity to get some. So they had to do you favours a lot. It was a great job. I really loved it. And I loved the whole... Um, 
play hard, work hard kind of thing that revolves around the Navy, really. Nice. Um, so the book is obviously set in the Northeast and in Newcastle. Absolutely, yeah. uh, What are some of your personal favourite spots in the Northeast and why did you choose to set the book? <laughs> I don't know how long you've got. I know, that's probably quite a big one. Way let's, too let's, long. let's pick maybe... I, I, I'll give you half a dozen. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, to start with, I, I, it, as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm not from um, the Northeast originally. I, I moved up here about 25 years ago. Uh, when I met my wife, who is a Geordie and was returning back to her native town within about two months of me actually meeting her. She lived in London and I lived in Portsmouth when we met. And then she says, oh, by the way, I'm moving back to Newcastle in about three weeks' time. Uh, But the minute I saw Newcastle, where I'd never been before, I was just like, I'm coming with you. This is amazing city. Uh, And I've never lost that buzz. I love everything about it. So there was nowhere else I could possibly set the book. I mean, I've lived all over the country and all over the world but this is by far the longest I've lived in one place and I can't imagine going anywhere else it's it's a superb city in every sense so it was never going to be anywhere else and it also it kind of lends itself to a, a, a kind of claustrophobic crime thriller because it's way smaller than most other big cities and it's so small that the, the, the idea that there's kind of six degrees of separation is a nonsense there's no more than two I don't yeah, think I, I mean definitely. everybody you meet you will have a mutual friend It'd be unusual if you didn't, I think. So I liked that idea that, that you can actually play with that a bit, that people, know, everybody knows everybody, or at least they know one of their friends. So I thought that lent itself to a thriller. Uh, and then there's also the fact that there aren't that many crime writers who actually set their work in Newcastle. So I thought, OK, there's a, there's a nice gap there where, where it will come over as slightly unusual. Um, and, and all that seems to have worked very well so far. Yeah, definitely. I think obviously I'm from here, so for me it's it's really a ho- it adds that homely aspect yeah, as well for course, me. Um, but I think even if that wasn't the case, it's clearly like resonating with people really well because the I book think is so. I mean, there is a danger because you know, and and some publishers who looked at it were worried that it was a bit too parochial. That it was like, well, will people care about these people? And they were a bit. I I I deliberately don't go full on with the dialects because obviously that is difficult for people and also it's not my dialect and you know you know I don't want to get it wrong so so I drop a little bit in here and there but but there was a bit of reluctance amongst some publishers to even accommodate that but I think it's quite important to try and just give a flavor of the place um, yeah, definitely. But anyway, favourite places. Hit me with some of your favourites. Right, okay. Um, well, I, obviously, I live right in the middle of the Usburn Valley, and I, I just—it's very hard to leave it. Really, I, I mean, when I first moved here, there wasn't a lot here. There was maybe the, the ship under Biker Bridge, uh, and now I'm surrounded by uh, small independent restaurants, bars everywhere. We've tried to plan a pub crawl, but it would just take too long. There's so many of them. <laughs> Um, so I love um, uh, the Cumberland uh, pub and, and I especially love what Carl there has done recently by opening up the brewery, the old coal yard. I don't know if you've been there where they put I've on the internet. It's no. a fantastic pop-up bar. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a particular favourite. I love a lot of places that started, there's so much independent stuff going on, which is another great thing about the city. So places that started off as pop-ups like Riley's Fish Shack in Tynemouth and uh, Anna's restaurant, the Cook House. So all of those things, I, I was in on the ground floor really and helped crowdfund when they've gone to bigger things. Alpha Betty Theatre is another place I would mention in the yeah, centre of town near Discovery. One. I mean, Ali Pritchard there has now 
basically hand-built two different theatres. You built one, had to move, and then built another. And it's the most vibrant, encouraging place for writers, you can imagine. Um, so huge, huge fan of that. You want any more? Um, if you want to hit me with a couple more. I mean, anything, anything around here. So I, I, I'm a very occasional jogger. Um, and I can go out the door here and go through Heaton Park and Armstrong Park and particularly Jesmond Dean. It's on my doorstep and it's so beautiful and a lovely, I, you know, I'm a reluctant runner, but w w when you work in the house, you need to get out and do something. Otherwise you put on too much weight and it, you yeah. get very lazy. So I have to do it now and again. And to have that on my doorstep is beautiful. It's a lovely place to just jog gently through. And I do mean gently. Yeah. I know I'm the same I work from home and it uh, well, you know very much like. sort yeah. of pyjama life and also you tend a, to eat more probably yeah. cause, and also my know. steps you know this whole 10,000 steps a day thing yeah. and it's like 953 and like I walk from one room to the other to the kitchen for a cup of tea I know. back upstairs I mean ironically it's a little kind of flashback of my life because you know when I was in the Navy on a ship I was probably about 30 feet from my office when yeah. you get up so you literally get up walk along the corridor go in your office and that was your entire world view if you like so I've, I've kind of reverted back to that a bit was it difficult getting a first book published God, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a very long, difficult process I, I, and one in which you have very little control. Um, and there's so many stages it, it, and you don't, you don't know this really until you start attempting it. Obviously, you said about um, publishers being a bit wary of where it was set. Well, there's that as well. But firstly, you've got to get to the publishers. And for that, you pretty much need an agent. And getting an agent is the, is the first difficult thing. Uh, uh, you know, you can send out to as many as you like. You'll be lucky to get even replies to 50% of the people you send it out to. And 99% of the ones who reply will say, I'm too busy, I can't, you know, haven't had time to read it, or I don't like it, or whatever. Very few... You generally send out a kind of um, synopsis and a few chapters. Very few then come back and ask to read the whole book, um, and that can take forever. They don't like you to submit too many at once, um, because then if they take the time to read a book, you know, and they, somebody else is reading it as well and gets in, it's a waste of their time. So there's all that. But then when you do finally get an agent, if you are lucky enough to do so, because most don't, you don't realise that the whole thing starts again, because then they are sending it out to publishers and editors in exactly the same way that you did, hoping that somebody will go, yeah, I, I'm interested, I'd like to buy this book. So you go through the whole process again, but at one step removed, it's not even you who's having the conversations. Yeah. So you tend to get the odd email going, oh yeah, um, so-and-so liked it, but, so, and, and, and that's a, just another list of rejections, really. So you've got to be very resilient. Uh, I mean, you've got to get used to just countless, countless, Rejections. I mean, every writer you speak to will have hundreds, um, and I have hundreds. Um, so all that takes a lot of time. And then what I what I never had any knowledge of was that there's there's a third step then because each publisher has a lot of kind of in, almost semi independent editors who are the ones that buy the books, but they can't do it on their own. So you might even get an editor in a publisher saying, "Yeah, I want to buy this book. It's great," but he then has to go to an in house meeting and persuade the marketers <laughs> and, and his boss or their boss, her boss, that this is a book they should all be investing in. And if there's not a kind of collective agreement, then you, f you fall at that stage. 
And I, I went through all of those stages a number of times before I finally got a deal. Um, so, yeah, that just yeah, makes it's the, tough. Yeah, that just makes the deal and the way that the book has been received, that must just make it feel even more amazing. Uh, yeah, but. absolutely. I'm still slightly overwhelmed and, and a little shocked and still kind of pinching myself, really. So obviously that's all the process of getting the book published. But once the book is actually published... What do you as a writer have to do to kind of publicize your own book? Like I mean, how it's much not even it that simple. It's such a process because I, you know, I went to the end of that process and actually got offered a two book deal by a, by a terrific publisher. Quirkus are, are excellent. But the length of time it takes from that point to get the book out there is about 18 months on average. So I signed this deal almost two years ago. Um, wow. And then you have to, jump and you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops but you have to do there's editing to go through there's all kinds of stuff about the covers there's copy editors there's, there's all kinds of processes but they only have a certain number of windows to release books so by the time they sign somebody they've already filled up the next 12 months worth of slot so it just takes forever uh, and i got a two book deal so basically in between the time i have to write another book as well um but then yes uh, you don't have to do so much about promoting you know, for the first year of that, because obviously the book's nowhere near coming out. But from about maybe six months before you start to get involved. And it's changed a lot, I suspect. I mean, obviously I'm quite new to this, but but since the advent of so much self-publishing and the people who self-publish have to work so hard promoting their books. I mean, they, they probably do that 70% of the time and write for 30%, I would imagine. Um, that it's now kind of expected of, of people in the traditional publishing world, writers will have to get out there and promote their own stuff as well. Uh, and that's getting heavy and heavy. I've spent the whole morning today doing things that promote the book. I've done no, I'm supposed to be editing my second book, but but I have, I have no time at the moment. I guess obviously now the way things have developed as well with the social media, yeah, and absolutely. there's a lot that you have to kind of get involved with on that side. Yeah, I, I, I do have a social media person at the publishers. That's good. Who kind of guides me through the best ways to do some of this. But you still have to do a lot of it yourself. So, so I, I, I certainly spend at least 30 minutes to an hour every day at the moment going through Facebook and Twitter. I only use Facebook and Twitter. I, you can't do everything. So you came out in the Navy and worked as a journalist. And then is it then that you started writing the stage comedies with a writing partner? Uh, yeah, I did a journalism course. The week I left the Navy pretty much started a, a year-long journalism course. Uh, and then went to work for the city council as a press officer. For, a, for about three or four years, which was interesting, but not kind of what I wanted to be doing, really. Uh, and then one of the guys I was on my journalism course with, Ed Woff, had been badgering me for ages. We had a shared interest in writing comedy, but uh, well, in, probably in watching comedy, but kind of thought it was the, the, the standard was dropping off and that there was almost nothing in the theatre. And we kept saying, oh, well, why don't we do something? But, you know, life gets in the way. But he kept badgering me, and in, in, in the end, we decided to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> with no knowledge whatsoever of what we were doing. Uh, so that. it was a bit of a shot in the dark, really. Yeah, that's uh, really cool. But the timing was very good. It kind of coincided with my daughter starting um, primary school. So my wife and I had both been in pretty busy full-time jobs and, and she was in a nursery before and that was fine. But as soon as they start primary school, they're kind of finishing at three o'clock and it's quite difficult to work around it. So I kind of made an agreement with my wife that I'd, I'd have a year to try this writing lark, whilst at the same time doing all the school run stuff and doing all the house husbandy type things. 
uh, and we'd see how it goes. And, and luckily it went really well. Yeah, I really like that setup. So you can, you know, it's never, there's never a cutoff point for trying to do something that you oh, want to do. No. Do you know what I'm, I mean? I'm I love that. All the time. I mean, I, I, I don't know what age I was, 40 maybe, um, which seems a bit late to start trying to make a career as a comedy writer. But And yet. And yet, yeah. And yet I mean, we, we, were, we were incredibly lucky in so many ways, but, but you need that, I think. So Ed had been doing freelance PR for the Customs House Theatre in South Shields. And, and a couple of months after we'd started writing, by which time we'd pretty much written a play, <laughs> sort of. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in a meeting and somebody had dropped out of the schedule, a, a touring show, and they were like, oh my God, we've got a, you know, a week's gap. What are we going to do? And he was going, I've written a play, I've written a play. And eventually the guy said, just leave it on my desk. I'll have a look at it with, without any thought. Uh, and then one day I got a phone call from Ed saying, um, they're, they're going to put our play on. So we started writing in the January. Our first play was professionally performed in June, which that, that's impossible. Incredible that never happens. Yeah. never happens. And because we both worked with local journalists a lot, we promoted the hell out of it. I mean, we did all kinds of ridiculous things to promote the play. Um, we, we convinced Newcastle, it, it was a play loosely based around a big horse racing fan, a gambler basically. And we persuaded Newcastle Racers to name a race after the play. So we were the race sponsors for no money whatsoever. Um, we, we got Ed's son and his best friend to dress up as a pantomime horse and run around the race course with the name of the play on the outside of it. And, uh, that is inspired. Insane things like that. That's but inspired. basically we, we sold the place out and the theatre had almost never had that kind of audience for, for locally grown theatre. Um, and it just went from there, really. And our second play went, went insane uh -oh. all over the world uh, and still is playing today. <laughs> so That's incredible. So it's gone quite well. How do you find the, the writing of plays, like comedy stage plays, in comparison to writing a crime novel? Did you find that writing the plays sort of helped that writing process or is it just so completely different that it's... A little bit. Um, I mean, plays are a lot easier. They're a lot less words for a start. I, I mean, a full-length play is probably only yeah, about, about 25,000 words. Um, a a full-length novel is somewhere near a 90. Um, yeah. And I used to write the plays with somebody else. So, I probably, you know, theoretically, I only wrote 12,500 of those. Now I'm doing it all on my own. So it's, <laughs> it's about 10 times the amount of work. So it takes a lot longer. Uh, and it's a lot more complex in many ways. Um, but it did help. I mean, the one thing I knew that I could write when I started to try and write the crime novel was dialogue, because basically a play is dialogue. There's very little else in there. Um, so I knew that that side of things was going to be fine, but it was all the other stuff. So I did a few courses. Um, you know, you can't be too proud about these things. I went and did uh, two local courses, which were, were brilliant, really helpful for me. I met brilliantly on a very small writing course. I met a retired cop, Tony Hutchinson, um, who is now my advisor on all things police. Oh, nice. But also is now a, a publishing magnet with his own publishing company called Cheshire Cat um, uh, and has published three of his own crime novels. When I met him, he was only just started out writing. Uh, a good friend now, which is lovely. But, but you just build up contacts and learn a lot. Uh, and then in the end, I did the the MA at UEA, which really cemented the whole thing together, I think. 
Yeah, that was one of, I mean, it's such a prestigious union, such a prestigious course, isn't uh, it? Uh, again, sometimes you just think I'm, I'm coasting on a wave of luck here, but I, I'd done these local courses and I, 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 I wrote a book before this um, and, I, and I actually did get an agent with it, um, but it wasn't clearly selling. The publishers were okay about it, but clearly wasn't exactly what they were looking for. And, and I was just thinking, well, what am I going to do now? when I saw uh, an announcement that the University of East Anglia, one of the greatest writing universities in the country, had decided to do their very first crime writing specialised MA, and it was part-time. So I applied and I got a place. There were only 11 of us on the first course, and it was uh, awesome. Was the book that you wrote that you that didn't end up getting published, was that also a crime novel? Yeah, yeah, but it was a, it was a lot more comic. I... I I stayed in my comfort zone, and that was the problem, I think. I didn't really push myself enough. It's a much more comedic crime book, and there's not really much of a market for it. I now know, because I know a lot more about the industry, but editors aren't that keen on comic crime, because they say that they have to now make two decisions about a book when they're looking at it. They have, they have to, number one is, is it a good book? Then number two is, is it funny? And will other people think it's funny? And that's quite subjective and it's pretty hard for them to guess. So they, even if they think it's funny, they're not quite sure if, if it, can it be a big appeals risk to other to take. people. So they're taking two risks instead of one. So they're very reluctant. Uh, and I've learned all that just from partially from doing the MA because you get to meet a lot of editors and agents and other writers. Um, so you find out a lot more about what the market is interested in. When you were writing The Man on the Street, did you plot everything out really detailed in the first place? Or did you kind of go with the flow when no, you were putting it together? That, again, another thing you learn is that there seems to be an almost 50-50 split in the crime world. So half the writers plot religiously and relentlessly. So they'll spend months writing out a plot before they write an actual word of the book. Um, others sit down and go, right, what happens? <laughs> and write a first chapter. Generally start with a strong first chapter that will kind of set you on your way and then go from there, um, which is more risky but I think more exciting. And I read the other day, actually, I read Lee Child talking because he's just announced his retirement. He's going to pass the baton on to his brother to write the Jack Reacher books, apparently. And his um, method is literally the, exactly the same as mine. Write the first chapter and go, what happens next? Because like me, he says that he, he want, he's a storyteller and he wants to write a story. But if he knows what that story is, there's no motivation to write it. So if he plans it out, he, that story's gone and he wants to write another story. So I like not knowing what happens. And I also think it means it's more interesting for the reader because if I had no idea what was going to happen next, it must be harder for them to have a clue. It's what gets me up in the morning, really, to say, well, what's going to happen next in this story? It, it probably takes you, well, it does take you a lot longer to write the book because if you plan the whole thing out and you have 100 pages of notes and you, all you have to do is basically expand on that a bit, that's pretty straightforward, really. You can write it quite quickly if you're making up as you go along. A, it takes longer. B, you then have to go back and edit quite a lot because now and again you'll go somewhere and you think, oh, okay, that's not working. The thing I did earlier has got to change. So you quite often have to edit as you go along. Yeah, I think the way that uh, there's so many twists and turns in the book and a lot of things where I, where I just was totally surprised or didn't see it coming. Me too. I think that Me comes too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, interesting to know that you dead? were thinking what? the same. Yeah, <laughs> but sometimes you just go... Wow, that's that's a. I've got to do that now, and then yeah. think I, I wasn't planning that, but and I haven't got him anymore because he's dead now. So what am I going to do with 
Uh, so, it, and, but that excitement is great. Yeah, I love that. You really root for Jimmy as well through the whole thing, and I think you I kind hope of, so. Yeah. I mean, it's, partially my thinking on the on the planning issue is that I'm much, much, much more interested in characters than I am in story, and I, I, I tend to concentrate on that because I think if you get the characters right, then the rest, not entirely, but mostly, takes care of itself. I don't. All the books I love all the crime books I love. I, I doubt I could tell you what the plots were, but I can remember the stories. I, I, you know, I can talk about Michael Connelly's Parry Bosch. I can talk, um, but the stories in, the, in those books, I, I probably couldn't remember a thing about any of them. So it's all about character for me, really. What was it that kind of made you want to write crime? Probably about 75% of what I read is crime, I, even from a young age. I'm old enough that Enid Blyton was my gateway drug into crime really the famous five and the secret seven and all that stuff to this so, day i don't know if she's still i don't know, know if she's, no, know if she's I'm still, still out big, there as, yeah. a, as a kid's <laughs> book but but certainly when i was young i, I devoured them i particularly like a series called the something of adventure it was like the island of adventure and the thing of adventure in it. yeah i remember those uh, it was the same exactly the same as the famous five i think they even had a dog you know uh, so that was my my gateway drug back then. There was there was pretty much no YA, no young adult stuff out there. So, kind of once you'd done the childish stuff, when you got your adult library cards, you went and got well, what am I supposed to read now? And it, so there was nothing like there is now. There's a whole industry of stuff aimed at teenagers. So I kind of hit a lull there, but I went on a very dull barge holiday to the Norfolk Broads with a with my cousin and his family. And it was raining a lot and we got stuck on the barge a lot, but there was a big collection of Agatha Christie books on the barge and I just read one after another after another. So that would, that kind of cemented the whole thing, really. Enid Blyton and Agatha Christie are to blame. And I think if you read a lot, I mean, you have to read a lot if you want to write, I think, no matter what genre you're writing. But if you read a lot of crime, you kind of have a sense of how it works. Maybe not entirely and probably need a bit of help to, to cement that down, but I felt like I knew the genre pretty well. So when you were putting the book together, what sort of research did you do into the homelessness and the veteran angles? Um, I did a lot online um, and then some around the city. So I, it, I, I went to the People's Kitchen, had a good look around, had a tour of the place, spoke to some of the people who used it and the staff who worked there, which was brilliant. And I spoke to a couple of um, homeless charities as well uh, who were very helpful Um told me all about the way the hostel system works um, which was very useful I'm still hoping I, I've been long planning to go and actually look around a hostel but it keeps falling through you know it's the guys are very busy uh, um, and I don't like to impose too much but that will happen I'm sure but one of the things I found um, looking online was this amazing map of Newcastle which was drawn up by the homeless which, which is a kind of hand-drawn map with lots of notes written all over it, which says things like, slept behind Greg's, was really nice and warm, but the police moved me on, or I slept in a tree in Lees's Park. And I've used so much of that. <laughs> yeah, this is I amazing. mean, you've read the book and you will, yeah. you will see things in there and you go, oh God, I remember mentioning that about the benches and the trees. And, and it was a, just a fantastic little kind of idiot's guide to things that I'd never even considered. Um, about the way the city looks completely different to somebody who's homeless, you know. Uh, this is and incredible. it's full of, it, it's kind of an information map for if you're ever homeless, for like, this is a good place to sleep. There's a bit somewhere in amongst that where it says, don't sleep here, it's where, it's where the drunks come out of the pub and you might get kicked. Oh um, my God. So it's full of stuff. So that was invaluable, absolutely invaluable. 
Yeah, this. I mean, this map is incredible. Yeah, I think it shows like how much of a kind of community. You yeah, know what oh, they, a absolutely. lot of the, like a lot and of homeless is, people know, are looking out for each I other all the time. Came, I hope that comes over in the book, then, because I wanted to make that a factor that yeah. that it is a community and they do look out for each other. It, it, it's not just a kind of whole mass of independent people all suffering in, in, on their own. They do look out for each other, uh, undoubtedly, mm-hmm. and that map kind of is part of that. Actually, it's it's almost like a guide to say, look, if you're in this position, these are the places to go. These are the places to avoid. Um, you might get help here. There's lots of notes on there about, oh, these people here will give you tea and coffee. Uh, so that was fantastic. Uh, and on the, and obviously I knew about the ex-service stuff from my Navy days, but I didn't know very much about PTSD. And probably the best thing I read was a book called The Veterans Survival Guide by a guy called Jimmy Johnson. It's, it's a, a really good insight into the problems, it's written by a guy who was in the army and did two tours of Northern Ireland and saw some horrific things, which he describes in some detail. And then after leaving, ended up doing two prison terms, both for murder, um, oh and has finally kind of accepted that it was the PTSD that was a big problem and has turned it around and has basically written this book about all you can do to survive, if you like, and and the signs to look out for. And that was a really invaluable kind of tool for me when I was trying to get my head around about the effects of of PTSD um, and the causes as well. Have you got any advice for people wanting to write a book? I mean, it's a pretty open-ended, <laughs> massive question. I guess rejection, being able to cope with rejection, obviously that you've already said a, is a really big one. That is undoubtedly um, a big thing. Um, I think the first thing is to write. Right. There's a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, I'd like to be a writer. And, oh, I've got a book. I've got a book I want to write, but they don't actually write. So, number one, sit down and write. The only way you can find out if you can write is to actually do it and do it a lot and keep doing it. The other thing I'd say is don't be shy about it. Show it to people. Get help. Uh, my work is immeasurably improved by the people who read it and tell me what they think about it. And obviously you need to be selective about who you do with that. I wouldn't just use your mum or your sister or whatever because they'll probably be too kind. You need people who are constructive but honest. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have quite a lot of those around. So those are the two main things. Write, <laughs> it's quite important. Get other people to read it as well. Don't don't stick it in a drawer and not show it to anybody because a it's never going to get published if you do that. But b it won't be as good. This idea of writers kind of sitting in their little attic room and churning some stuff out and then sending it off when it gets published it's pretty much non-existent. Really, never happens that way. And once you do get into the industry, you'll have an agent who's going to have views about it. You'll have an editor. You'll have a copy editor. There'll be countless people who are feeding back on your work. It's much better to get a lot of that done earlier. And then by the time it gets to them, there's a lot less for them to say about it because you've kind of honed it and polished it and perfected it. I obviously do get editor's notes and sometimes, you know, there are some changes suggested, but actually, by and large, it's pretty polished by the time I send it off now. But that's because of all these other people who are helping me. I've just got some little fun, quick-fire questions to finish with. Oh, God. Just to <laughs> shake things up a bit. No, yeah. Um, if, you're, if the book was a meal or a drink, what would it be and why? <laughs> <laughs> Terrible at these things. <laughs> um, what would it be? 
think it's quite down and dirty, isn't it? So maybe, you know, well, that like dirty nachos or something. Does that work? Oh, yeah, that totally think, works. Yeah, I think so. It's got a bit a bit gritty and a bit mm. edgy and you're not quite sure what's in it. I think that oh God, that's works making me hungry for me. Now. And uh, uh, tequila, probably. Yeah, okay, yeah. Nachos and tequila, love it. Um, what did you buy with your first paycheck as a writer? Was there something kind of iconic you remember? Even if it was like a cake or like a... I have got, actually, I have got uh, upstairs that I do still use. So it's, uh, I was at Time Mouth Market and there was a thing selling little placemats and one of them was a uh, Pulp Fiction poster on a placemat and I thought, well, that works for me. If I need a bit of inspiration, a Quentin Tarantino placemat is a pretty good place to start so I think let's let's say I bought that with my first paycheck that's a good one and I'm a bit of a cake dessert fan well fiend so what is your favorite cake or dessert I've got such a sweet tooth that I very rarely eat them because if I start you can't stop it's a it's an absolute nightmare but I'm the same I can it be one that I make 100% yeah of course I I have a recipe for a, a very alcoholic trifle made with amaretto um, that you pour all over the sponge first and then you can put in either black cherries or raspberries and then custard and cream and it's yeah that's pretty more that sounds pretty good so that but you can't really get it anywhere although it was i can't remember who the chef was it was a you know recipe in the guardian magazine or something but i make it every year for our boxing day party and it yeah, I'll be on the doorstep next Boxing Day. Like, hello. <laughs> well, you're, I'm here you're for the party. more than welcome. Your mum's been to the party. I know she has. I actually was going to come one year, um, but then I think there was something. It's one of those Boxing Day, isn't it, where everyone's having different things. Yeah, yeah of course, of course. If I'd known, known there was going to be a Amaretto <laughs> trifle, it's very good. Yes, I'll be over next time. Um, thank you so much, Trevor. It's been really amazing talking to you. Oh, it's and been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Hearing all the stories. So yeah, okay. thank you so much. Trevor Wood, The Man on the Street, is published by Quirkus Books and is out now. Thanks so much for listening to Lifting the Lid. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to help other people find the podcast. See you next time.